Let us pray. Father God, there is no power in these words unless you are behind its proclamation through the power of your Spirit. Let the going forth of your word be faithful to Scripture. If I were to stray, if I were to err, Lord, let it be forgotten. And ultimately, let us all draw nearer to the Lord our God. You're feasting on the word this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you remember where we are? The long night of slavery is over. The angel of the Lord, the Spirit of God, so protected the people, so defended the people that they have been delivered from their enemies and they now stand on the opposite side of the seashore in salvation. Maybe you didn't hear the sermon through Exodus 14, and and actually that's kind of okay. Because there is in one sense the reality that you're going to hear it again. Not all the same points, but it's been pointed out about chapters 14 and 15 that really when it talks about salvation, it's talking about the same moment of deliverance, the same act of salvation, and, and really chapter 14 wants us to walk through the narrative, walk through the story. Consider these things. And yet, chapter 15 wants us to dance through the narrative, to celebrate the deliverance, to have great joy going through the salvation of the Lord. And so that's hopefully, by God's leading, what we will do today. So they are on the opposite side of the seashore. A moment where the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 will say this was a a baptism-like moment in Scripture. All these people of different age ranges and, and even we've seen different ethnicities. It's not just Israel, but yet these other ethnicities are have already been kind of grafted into the covenant family of Israel. They have come to the other side of the shore. They have come to be delivered. And then they are now going to begin to sing. This is the first time in Scripture a congregation is going to sing to God. This is, in one sense, the first song of humanity singing in Scripture that, that is recorded. It's not the first time we talk about music in Scripture, for instance, We know in Genesis chapter 4, as Cain establishes his own city, uh, I believe it's in verse 21, that as the city unfortunately descends into greater godlessness and sexual perversion, that it does have an aspect of, of musicality to it. It does begin to create its own songs, both with stringed instruments and with pipes. So the first Emory Brothers, I guess. Um, though hopefully Emory Brothers is more righteous. Uh, so, um, 
We know that story. But also, actually, in the full testimony of Scripture, we know from places like uh, Job, it's either 38 or 36, I believe, uh, but in Job, that the angels were singing as God was creating the universe. When they're beholding God creating the majesty of the world, the angels were not silent. They were singing. And actually, we read in Zephaniah chapter 3, I believe verse 17, of how God one day will sing over us. Think about that. Like, there was the girl from West Ready who just toured the nation, and I, I think she had really popular concert tickets. I think she has the most popular concert tickets today, the girl from West Ready. And people clamored to go to her concerts and filled up large stadiums. And, and there's a day coming where God's going to sing to us. So music, I, I see this because music actually has divine origins. It actually it extends from heaven to us. And this is the first time in all recorded scripture God is going to give us his people, his congregation, the lyrics, which we can sing back to him. And yet, with any concert, setting matters. Where this takes place matters. And it's a remarkable place that this takes place. There are dead Egyptian soldiers' bodies on the seashore right beside this large group of people. Think of that for a setting. We don't, we don't tend to picture that idea. This is the moment where God gives this unique first hymn that his congregation sings to him in Scripture. Surrounded by the judgment of God. Realize you're talking about millions of Israelites on the seashore right now. But again, on that seashore is the crushed enemies of God. In the millions of Israelites, many would have known some who just perished. They would have shared similarities in their life, uh, areas of overlap, of common experience. I mean, so many of these same soldiers would have been the ones who even guarded over these people from the authority of Pharaoh. And I, I'm sure not ev everyone was abusive, everyone was a jerk. Uh, I'm sure they, maybe even a few of them grew close to the people of God. And yet, while both groups lived side by side, they were headed to different ends. They were headed to different conclusions. That's the setting for the first congregational hymn of Scripture. That's the venue. The living, seen in the midst of the reality of the judgment and death and perishing of all those who are the enemies of God around them. And the tension here is the fact that often as Christians, we're found weak when it comes to the idea of sovereign justice. I've gotten anonymous letters before, for instance, when I dare mention hell from the pulpit and the reality of hell from the pulpit. We don't like that. We don't want to hear about that. 
You shouldn't want to talk about it, Pastor. They'll write. We prefer a God who lets the bygones be bygones rather than a God who seeks out the death of those that are unrighteous and continue in utter rebellion. But I'm sorry. That's not a venue in which the saints of God sing. You know, our God already has a plan to destroy all evil in our society. Old evils and new evils alike. Sometimes he will destroy evil by saving some of it. We know that personally as saved and redeemed. More often than that, however, we have to admit, our Lord will destroy evil by destroying it dramatically. Charles Spurgeon, once reflecting on this passage, said, I, for one, am perfectly satisfied with everything God does. I make bold to say that I would have praised God as the waves went over Pharaoh. For the Lord did it, and he did right. I would have cried with Moses. I will sing unto the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. I expect to be among that number. Though some seem as if they would decline the service. Who shall forever bless God for all his dealings with mankind? The stern, as well as those that seem more tender. The Lord God, even Jehovah, the God of the Old Testament, is the God whom I worship. Is that the God whom you worship today? Yes, our God can be as innocent as a lamb in overlooking our sin. Yes, that's true. But other times he's a roaring lion. We can't love the lamb but hate the lion. They are aspects of the same God. While we are a people who are to pray for our enemies, if our enemies remain our enemies, we are also a people who are to maturely be able to understand evil at times sometimes needs to be devoured. And if you think I'm overstating this, just let's take a quick moment and think of the book of Revelation. Probably the most terrifying imagery from the book of Revelation comes from the first six trumpet sounds. I mean, the first trumpet sound, for instance, is a mixture of fire, hail, and blood laying waste to large portions of the earth. I remember first reading that in the sixth grade while I was avoiding listening to Mrs. Woodard's English class and just being utterly terrified of that image. And yet... Have you ever thought and considered the fact that even the book of Revelation is set to music? Even the judgment of God is set to music as we read those passages? It's a new song, both here and at the end of the Bible. And so this moment is set to music. And so Exodus 15, in one sense, is foreshadowing a later moment set to music. As his kingdom comes and God's will is forever done, there will be singing. Oh yes, there will be much singing. And this oldest hymn of the Lord's congregation begins with an explanation of why they will sing to the Lord. 
I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. And it is followed in the next verse, in the first half, with the following. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Now I want to highlight, there's so many images I can highlight, but just highlight the idea of the Lord as our ultimate strength for a moment. When Jesus says it's necessary to love and serve God in the Gospels, for example, in Mark chapter 12, verse 30, what does he say the loving and the serving of God requires? Our mind and our strength, right? Well, here you have the first hymn of the congregation of the Lord, and where is our strength ultimately found? Sound in the Lord. The Old Testament reader understood this, who was faithful, that everything when it comes to salvation, the strength that we need to resist temptation, the strength that we need to live holy lives, the strength that our life requires in the hard moments and the difficult moments where we don't know what tomorrow will bring, when we don't know how God is going to bring us through a certain situation, the strength that we require is found in crying out to the Lord in faithful song. This, the New Testament echoes this idea. Paul, for instance, prayed for the churches in Asia Minor in uh, Philippians 4.13, saying the following. He said, he speaks for the enduring need for the churches, for him who strengthens me. And Paul exhorts those who are ministering and he says, let him serve by the strength that God supplies. So the strength we require to live by and to be delivered through comes from God. This is the consistent song of Scripture. No matter how many try and save themselves from their own works, we try to figure out our own way through hard situations, you can never really begin to move through such moments without first seeking the God in his strength. You require the strength of the Lord. And yet, why should we seek the Lord first as our strength? Verses 3 through 5 give us a good reason for this. Our God is a warrior. And what has he done with our enemies? He has destroyed them. And God's not just telling you through his word that if ancient Egyptians have ever pursued you, he's destroyed them. That's not the point. But those sins, those struggles that we have, those have been destroyed by the power of God. Our God fights for us. We've seen this through the power of the cross. Our God has allowed himself to experience the dark night of judgment. To be, in one sense, laid out for dead, for our sake and for our salvation, so that we can be baptized through the power of the Spirit, be saved through Him, receive His power. And so that's the joy of the Christian life that we have. He was the God who was lifted up on the cross with His arms stretched out. And all the powers of hell were thrown against Him, and the result of it was that our sins were thrown to the depths of Sheol. 
The good news of Christianity is the fact that in an ultimate sense, all of our opposition, all of our oppression, all of our sins are already finished in one sense. They are dead. They have passed into death through the power of Jesus Christ, and our sins lay dead on the seashore. And we have been raised to new life to our Lord Jesus Christ, and now we have a new song to sing, so that no matter the day, no matter the hour, no matter how much or how much, how little time we have remaining in this mortal life, we can look at the dead corpses of the past indwelling sin of our life on the seashore of our own lives, and we can say, we have reason to sing this morning. Our God has done something with that. We have reason to worship this God who has killed each and every enemy that pursued you and I. Do you see what the song is really trying to hint at when it speaks of salvation? It wants us to appreciate, yes, we are people who fell into sin. We are people who were pursued by the enemy. We are people who the devil desired to sift us like wheat. But God is our strength. And now every enemy is dead and gone in an ultimate sense. And so I will sing to the Lord for such a great deliverance. And so when we fall into the temptation of worry about our sins, what are we to remember? That the flood of judgment on Calvary covers them. It covers the sins of you and I. And they went down into the depths like a stone. You have nothing to fear in Christ. And starting in verse 6, the focus changes, and people begin to sing to the Lord, but not just to the Lord, but notice they sing to the right hand of God. Actually, in the Hebrew, verse 6, verse 12, and, and even hinted at somewhat in verse 16 in the raw Hebrew, there is a mentioning of the right hand of our Lord, or the right hand of God, or this arm of power. It keeps getting brought up throughout the song. The song keeps focusing on this right hand of God. You know what makes that so amazing? I know there was something we touched on last time I was up here, and it came from Jude, verse 5. In Jude, verse 5, who does Jude say saved the Israelites in this moment? Jesus saved them. If he thought I was crazy there to believe that the angel of the Lord who was actively fighting in Exodus chapter 4 was a pre-incarnate Jesus, the repetition of right-hand imagery helps really seal this idea for me. Consider just a few times, this is only a few times, the New Testament, New Testament identifies who the right hand of God is. Mark 16 verse 19. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Acts 2.33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Acts chapter 5, verse 31. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Romans 8.34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Colossians 3.1, 
If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Hebrews 10:12. But when Christ has had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. So here we are on the beachside. And the first congregational hymn sing is, is taking place. And they didn't understand it fully yet. They only looked in veiled form. But they already were praising the right hand of salvation. That is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Who as verse 8 declares. At the blast of his nostrils. The waters of the ocean moves. So they are gathered as a congregation at the seashore. Declaring that if you are protected by this right hand of God. Your safety and salvation is secure. His strength is unmatchable. And don't we still sing that same song in an ultimate sense? Well, enemies of a true and living faith seem to be uh, just breeding in our own day and age. God has established and joined us to him, and no evil can separate us from his love. Then in verse 11, we are at a true place to highlight in Scripture. This is the first time in all the Bible where our God is declared holy by his people. It's the only attribute of God where later in Scripture it will eventually be emphasized three times in the prophecy of Isaiah. The work of this right hand of God has led the people to declare the majestic holiness of God, the set-apartness of God, and the declaration of God's holiness here in this first song and the con first congregational hymn sing is that to remind us the Bible's ultimate theme isn't that we are, as people are saved. It's not of ultimately human salvation first and foremost, but rather the Bible is telling us something about God's distinct character and bringing glory and holy reverence to himself through Using a fallen, chaotic, and disordered world. Somehow, this powerful right hand will set this godless world right of chaos, crushing all enemies by the power of his judgment and bring everlasting salvation. And so it's in the aftermath, as if early foretaste of this reality on the seashore, the people of God were able to say, this God is set apart. This God is distinct. This God is holy, majestically holy. And so this song has considered past and present salvation of God. And yet starting in verse 13, the hymn begins to focus on a greater future deliverance. Don't we all have a future reality that we hope to be delivered from? And notice the confidence of this hymn's lyrics. That God will lead his people one day to a holy abode. A place set apart in the midst of the nations. And we get to reach this place of holiness through that same strength that brought us salvation in the first place. Actually, there's this sense in the passage that the, this power will travel from nation to nation, from place to place, from ethnicity to ethnicity. 
and the nations will be purified one by one, cleansed by the purifying power of God, by the future wisdom and judgment of God. And once this is accomplished, verse 17 foretells us that the Israelites will live together with God at His sanctuary on earth. This represents a promise of a complete undoing of the damage caused when Adam and Eve turned against God in the Garden of Eden. There's a picture of people living in unity near to God. It epitomizes the ultimate aim of divine salvation. It's, it's what gave the apostles encouragement in John chapter 14 when he said, I go to prepare a place for you. That place is not, it's, it's ultimately going to be a place found here on earth. It is a redemption we hear about and we read about in Revelation 20 through 22. This is the great hope. There will be a place on this earth where our saving God will dwell with us. And so are you noticing yet how in this brief song we're sort of reading a Cliff Notes version of the entire Bible? The key aspects of how we are saved, what we are saved from, and where God's salvation will ultimately lead. All these things can begin to be seen in this first hymn. This first hymn that a congregation ever sings to the Lord in worship and praise of His holiness. Honestly, if you're really following along with what I'm trying to say here, Let me run quickly to the Gospel of Luke. You can, with greater understanding, appreciate why Abraham can tell the rich man, not the rich man from North Richmond, but the rich man who is set against Lazarus, that he can't do anything for him. Think about that. That rich man was an internal torment. And, and, and when he finds out that Abraham can't do anything for him, he says, please at least, please, please send Lazarus to my brothers. Let them know. Let them know. What does Abraham say with a clear conscience? They won't accept the testimony of Moses and the prophets. It won't even matter if a dead man comes to life. It's interesting because there are a few moments, you don't have to dogmatically hold this, but there's a few moments where it seems to suggest that those who pass on in this life still have some degree of awareness of what's going on down here. I thought about that in this moment of Scripture. And I thought about that in reflection of how in this song, we can see hints of the entire redemptive story of the scriptures. And, and I think the amazing thing that it helped me consider is this. You know, I'll often tend funerals, and especially Roman Catholic funerals, it's like uh, little Billy or Jamie 
is now a guardian angel in heaven, and it's always theologically frustrating when that's said. That's we don't turn into an angel; we're humans. Um, but people like to think of their loved ones, past and gone, as guardian angels. The people in torment thought that, like a Lazarus coming would change things. The people in the presence of God, you know what they think? They think they have his word. They already have the testimony of a dead man coming to life for their sake and for their salvation. They have his word. They're, they're in lockstep. They're in chorus with Abraham. You know, if, if our ancestors are watching the absolute decimation of uh, the American inheritance and to this godless, gross society, our, our deceased grandpappy and grandmammy uh, that might have died in faith in the Lord aren't going up there, oh, well, if only they'd elect that politician. If only I could visit and, and tell them something. They're saying... Why don't they look at the Word of God? Why aren't they passionate about the Word of God? Why don't they love the power of God that desires to save them, to offer them redemption, to offer them hope? Why rather would they just trade it for other things? I would bet you most of us look at our iPhones, look at our electronics more than we do in the Bible. We... Why don't we look to the God who brings redemption like this more? Why do we so quickly forget this song? Why does it take so long for this song to come about in Scripture? A song like this. This is thousands and thousands of years and thousands of years in redemptive history. Oh, how fickle we are. How fickle. God is beautiful. God is glorious. I'm going to end there. I have more. I'll get to it next week. I'm going to end there. Let us pray. Father God, we are a fickle people. As we look around at the death that surrounds us in this life, we deserve to be there. We were once dead bodies on the shore. And yet you breathe life into us through the power of the Holy Spirit. You've baptized us through the presence of your Spirit within us. And yet, we resist. We fight. We struggle against you in ways that we should never struggle against you. We look along and over, longingly over to the other side of the seashore even. What we've been rescued from, occasionally we convince ourselves that we would be happier 
going there instead of staying with you and worshiping you and delighting in the God who was holy, the God who was a wonderful Savior and Redeemer and friend. Let us, in a day where we go out from this place and we are surrounded by much death, and many of those who don't understand that the floodwaters of judgment are hanging over their heads, let us be faithful, Lord. Let us understand that you've called us to new life in Christ so that we have courage, that we have assurity, that we have trust. We have the courage to just say simple things like, would you come to church with me sometime? Why don't you come to know Jesus more faithfully to those around us? To offer the gospel, to share the gospel, to believe in the gospel more firmly, to be changed by the gospel, to get life through looking to the right hand of God who provides us salvation for all our sins. Lord, help bless us in these ways. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let us take a moment quietly and privately to confess our sins before the Lord.